0: What's going on behind the scenes with your favorite Voice America show or host? For the
1: latest news, visit the iRadio blog at iradioblog.com. The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit VoiceAmericaBusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Leadership today is more than just a position in an organization. It's also a mix of proven practices that produce results. Welcome to Adesis Methodology for Collaborative Management for Exceptional Results with Dr. Ishak Adesis. Our program will bring you the how and why of successfully led businesses or organizations with not-for-profit goals and how you can apply the Adizis Methodology and make it work for you. Now, here is Dr. Ishak Adesis.
2: Hello, hello to everyone listening to this broadcast. I understand we have a world, over 30,000 people listening to this all over the world, and I'm really, really impressed and flattered by it. Uh, today we have on in our interview Emmanuel Gill, who has been former president and CEO of Elbit Systems from Israel, and who is talking to us uh, from Burgundy, France, and I'm talking to you from—actually, can see from my window the Red Square in uh, Moscow. And the recording is being done in Arizona, a global village, isn't it? Hello, Emmanuel. How are you?
0: Hello.
2: It's great. You? How are you? Uh, good. good. Now you sound good. I'm very good. I'm very good, as a matter of fact. Uh, uh, I'm so glad that you agreed to and give your time. I know it's very valuable— to, to this broadcast, you were the former CEO of Elbit. Just tell us what do you do now, and then we'll go back and talk about Elbit. What do you do now, Edmanuel?
0: Well, I still have managing some investments as well as a chairman of uh, three or four companies. So I'm uh, busier than I really want to be, but uh, it's <laughs> mainly in in um, uh, helping companies do international business. Most of the technology is based in Israel and the markets are in the United States and the worldwide. I can see.
2: Emmanuel, when did you join Elbit? Which year was it and how big was Elbit at that time? Uh,
0: it was 1979 and it was uh, about uh, 35 million dollars of revenue, with quite a lot of losses, wow. and it was uh, actually a, a struggling in in the commercial part of it, doing quite well in the defense area, but that also had to be uh, reorganized and and uh, actually defined in a new marketplace.
2: 1979, did you say? Yes. And when you left, uh, how big was Elbit when you left? It was over a billion dollars. And uh, so it went, we had, yeah, about 30 went, times. It went from, uh, what year was it that you left? Uh, 20 years later, 1999. 1999, in 20 years, the company went from 35 million with losses to 1 billion with profit. And today, Elbit is how big is today? Oh, today it's over three billion, and it's uh, very
0: successful as well. Although it it uh, it changed its business from uh, a diversified company that was in military, in healthcare, and in communications to mainly defense systems, and it uh, focuses on defense mainly, and it's very successful as well. Okay, so uh, guys, what
2: I want to the uh, the listeners to know, again, which is a repetitive pattern, like last week, we talked to Dan Maidan from Applied Materials that went from 50 million to 11 billion. Elbit went from 35 million today to 3 billion, and is one of the largest electronic defense companies in the world. According to Josie Ackerman, the president of Elbit today, Elbit is probably in the top three in the world. Uh, uh, can you tell us, uh, Emmanuel, I, uh, what year did Adidas join? Because this is interview to find out how this does its work and what contribution does it do to the company. Uh, I don't remember when did I join. I think when in the I early join? 80s, uh,
0: like 1981,
2: 82.
0: It's uh, in my first three years in
2: Elbin. Now, why did you invite Adizis to Elbit? What happened? What you know, you were a struggling company. So, what was the story? What uh, I have my memories, but what are your memories?
0: Uh, my memory, I actually heard your your uh, uh, your lecture in in somewhere in Israel, and I was impressed by the fact that there was some systematic approach to management, which I never actually thought of uh, possible because really managing is much more. Uh, relationships between people and things that are very hard to define scientifically. And I heard that you were actually approaching this with a uh, much more accurate approach, uh, like defining types into only four, where I thought there were at least 44 types of people. (laughs) And... (laughs) And then uh, measuring things, that, which, things that I really uh, thought that are very important is to put in goals and objectives into detailed objectives and detailed numbers. And that all came along very intuitively with what I thought I would want to introduce. And of course, you, uh, you came in and you helped us um, for over, I think, five, six years.
2: You know, my memory is we went to some little Kakamaike hotel on the Carmel Mountain. We locked yeah. ourselves in, and I did the diagnosis of the company, What of the companies in the life cycle, which of the problems are normal, which of the problems are abnormal, so we can focus and do our priorities right. And what I tell everybody when they ask me about you, I said, you're the only guy that picked up the analysis the fastest, and you knew this is called a spreadsheet. Why problems occur, in what sequence, and exactly what they fit. And I was standing there with Joe. I opened it up because you could identify the chain of causality faster than anybody that I've seen in my, my, my experience, so, which means you picked up to the systematic approach to management like, I don't know, like a, <laughs> like a very thirsty horse to water. So I was really impressed. And then what happened? What, what did we actually do at Elbit that you can point it from memory? I mean, it was 20 years ago, but nevertheless, we remained in close contact. And then you will tell us how you're applying whatever you learned to the companies that you are managing now. Uh, uh, what did we actually do from your memory? What was the major changes that contributed, if you can say, uh, uh, to the growth and success of Elbit? What was it?
0: I think that uh, converting the the talent that we have without actually uh, hiring too many new people, the principle that uh, I tried to use, and by giving them the tools that uh, you provided, it was a systematic approach to to multiplying the uh, work that we did in one division and then uh, repeating it in, in another division. And uh, what could be easily shown, that if it's a top-down uh, line of, of authority, but with a good feedback coming back from the people, uh, it works, and, and what was easy to do is to repeat it in additional, in newer divisions, as as we started newer markets and newer products. Uh, that That systematic approach was really done by by people who learned it in the company. And they repeated it. And and today they can uh, quote uh, from the uh, Adidas methodology most of the things we learned then and most of the jokes that we heard from you.
2: You know what? You're pointing something very interesting because another client of Adidas, Peter Schutz, the president of Porsche, the car company, he said to me, you know, Chuck, what, you, what the diesel methodology does, it gets extraordinary results from ordinary people. And this is very important because usually companies look for extraordinary people to produce extraordinary results. And unfortunately, there are not too many extraordinary people. The trick is, how do you take ordinary people to produce extraordinary results? And what I think uh, I can mention, it, tell me if I'm right or wrong, What we did at Elbit and all the other companies that we work is continuous restructuring, continuously restructuring. I remember when Elbit had its big celebration, I don't know how many years of its existence, and they were making a joke that, oh, a has arrived, we are restructuring again, reorganizing again. Continuous reorganization because this company grows from 35 million to 3 billion it needs to reorganize continuously because the structure that it had does not fit its needs anymore. And what usually happens to companies, as they do not restructure, the people get boxed more and more, and then extraordinary people produce ordinary results. Do you remember how many times we restructured the company? I mean, it was unbelievable.
0: Absolutely. I mean, as a principal, I thought every year, year and a half, we had to look again at the organization and restructure it. Actually, they used to call it, and I used to call it, Elbit Dynamics, because of the changes of the organization all the time. And that was the principle. Yes, we should adapt ourselves to the to the changes that they are through the structure, through the organization, through moving people around. So, uh, absolutely, that, that was the one of the principles. And I, actually, I'm using the same principle with all the other companies I'm involved today. You know, people stick to the same job that usually is, is not sufficient for the organization and it doesn't give satisfaction to the people either.
2: I want to point to the audience, to the people listening to this broadcast. Here is a principle, my friends. If you have not restructured your company in the last three years, I'm telling you now, without even looking at your company, your company is in trouble. Why is that? Because a structure is like a pair of pants. When you buy a pair of pants to a little baby, after about three four months, they become underwear. The kid has outgrown its clothes. So if you do not restructure the company in three years, it's already tight. It's already holding the people down. It's already creating problems in the company. And three years is too long. In a diesel methodology, we don't even wait three years. Every year on the anniversary of approving the previous chart, we look at the chart again and see whether any changes are necessary. It will be like taking a car through a very, very difficult time, difficult road. You have to take it to the garage after 12,000 miles and check it for an overall. You don't just continue until the car falls apart. You know, that's extremely important and most people don't do that they don't do the restructuring until the crisis comes the company is in trouble things are falling apart they don't do preventative measures and Elbit did that I, I want to applaud Emmanuel I really loved working with you that's why we remained friends for so long because you, were, you, you picked it up and you never resisted any of the recommendations we made we restructured the company and then we did the blue book And about the blue book, we'll talk after a break. Let's take a break for a second. Break.
1: When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. The Adesis Management Methodology increases the speed at which organizations are able to implement change and solve their problems. The methodology introduces an innovative process, culture, and system that allow organizations to achieve dramatic growth in both revenue and profits. Build your success from within. Adesis Management Methodology is delivered by the Adesis Institute with offices worldwide, introducing a new management paradigm. Visit www.adesis.com for the Adesis Institute today. We're always talking business. Talk to an expert. Call now, toll free, 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network. You are listening to Adesis Methodology for Collaborative Management for Exceptional Results with Dr. Ishak Adesis. If you have a question or comment about the program, please call in to 1-866-472-5790. Again, that's 1-866-472-5790. Or send an email to paula at adesis.com spelled A like America, D like Denmark, I like Israel, Z, like in Zambia, E, like in Ecuador, and S, like Spain. Now, back to the program.
2: Uh, I remember the Blue Book struggle we had. And once it was introduced, just to remind you, it became a religion. And I was just talking to Yossi Ackerman, who is the CEO of Elbit now. And boy, they really really holding to that Blue Book like to the Bible. Can you tell us what you remember about the blue book principle that I was applying at your company?
0: Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, the the way uh, things were managed, I would think, you know, in the 70s, uh, mainly objectively speaking, because the computerized system were not adequate, and it wasn't easy to have a system under your uh, t- under your fingers that you could actually know what's going on in each of the uh, sections of organization and, and if you couldn't actually dynamically also forecast uh, something that we like and we still like is uh, estimate to complete you you guess what will be the result, not post mortem not after it's over and it's too late, but as you expect the project to, to continue or as you expect the year to end in sales by seeing the discrepancies you actually manage dynamically ahead of time. And that was one of the secrets that came out of the blue book because this was the tool that gave every individual manager the possibility of measuring the real time or near real time performance of the company. And, uh, I'm sure that today with the uh, newer technology, IT technology, it is much easier and even much more
2: efficient. And I just have to explain to the audience what the blue book is. There is a research, very interesting research that shows that the biggest complaint that growing companies have, fast growing companies have, and there is a common denominator <laughs> all over The complaint is that They lose information. As they're growing bigger and bigger, it becomes more and more complex. They don't know what's going on anymore. And the founders of companies complain, I really don't know what's going on. The accounting system is behind its time. The company is growing faster in multiple directions, faster than the accounting system can catch. As a result, many organizations are considered to be what's called a black box. You know what's Coming in, you know what's going out, what's happening in the middle, they don't have any idea. And that's when the company started to be managed by ratios. That is when the financial people take over the company and manage the company by financial reporting and financial ratios without knowing what is actually happening in the company. The purpose of the blue book, I call it, is an accounting system, is to make the organization transparent. So you know where the money is going, how it's made. Moving throughout the company from one end to the other, it is like a series of pipes, and you know how the money is flowing and where and who is in charge of what at what point in time. So, not one dollar, not one ruble, not one whatever franc is lost in the process. And you know who is accountable for it. And the problem is that the financial people fight it. They fight it to the nail, and it elbited a member of CFO. Really refused to do it until you told him you will fire him unless he does it. And the financial people resisted because he takes the power away from them. They want to manage the company by ratios, and you have to go to them to ask for a budget, and making the company transparent makes them threatened. That was the problem in all companies we have, how to take the power away from the financial people and give it to the real people that are running the company. Go ahead.
0: I, I want to add to that it's like I mean uh, there is one sentence that uh, we heard from you and, and since then I'm sure everybody's using it and that is approximately right is much better than precisely wrong and <laughs> and it, it it is a great uh, great uh, attitude in 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 uh, in management because usually the measurement is done by those accounting people financial people that are doing it very precisely because they cannot just give you a uh, an approximate pnl and sign off on it so they ha- they're typically very precise and you have to somehow educate them and give them the possibility of predicting approximately right and not precisely wrong which is too late and and you can't do much about it that that is the secret i mean you should use those two or 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 that sentence as as the as the prerequisite for the
2: success of the Blue Book. Uh, Tell me, uh, uh, Emmanuel, do you have any recollection of cultural change in Elbit? Because I was on the panel with Yossi, the CEO, the present CEO of Elbit, when we were talking about how Elbit is being run. And after 20 years, I've not been there 20 years ago, I mean, 20 years have passed. And he was describing how they're running the company and the culture of the company, and I was, again, my Joe fellow, nothing was missed. There could, now it's called the Elbit culture. And people didn't yeah. even know that it comes from a disease, like Natasha and, you know, Pips, and how to do diagnosis and to continuously restructure the company. And the blue book to have the transparency of information and the teamwork and the, and, and the and mutual trust and respect. All of these concepts, how the company is being run, how they handle the subsidiaries, how they buy companies with a mutual trust and respect, it was all, all a and they didn't even, except for Yossi, who was involved with me from the beginning, but the rest of the company doesn't even know it's a disease. So what culture there do you remember was changing? What was the cultural change that was important? Yeah, I think there,
0: there were several factors. One is definitely... Accountability—the sense of accountability—that you are given, the responsibility and and the freedom to make your own decisions, but you're accountable. And and because, I guess it was natural for the people to be very motivated, very uh, dedicated. Uh, that. Accountability was was very, It was used only or only in a positive way. Not not. They were not afraid of even making mistakes because it was clear that they would be uh, forgiven if, if it's a mistake that makes that that eventually it can be corrected ahead of time. The other uh, principle that I always uh, wanted to to uh, to see happen in, in, and it's still happening today, I believe, is you when you forecast and you project for the future it is you always underestimate or you you never give outside information or information for outside that you will not uh do better and i don't recall a single quarter where we had to give any explanation and the explanation as uh, i don't know if you remember it was the uh pnl was doch, revach, ve'esber, instead of (laughs) doch, revach, ve'evsed, which means profit and explanation, instead, because there's always an explanation where you lose. But uh, if you have enough reserves and you think about uh, areas where you can hold some reserves and then always surprise the the public, because we were a public company from day one, uh, since I arrived, uh, we we had to... uh, never uh, disappoint our our shareholders. And people understood it, and it was really down to the lower levels where they understood that uh, people will be fairly evaluated, will be rewarded accordingly. uh, But they have to do better than they promised, not worse and not
2: explain later. You know, Manuel, uh, not only you guys learned from me. I also learned from you, from the company. I, I pick up several things that I learned in Elbit, which I would like to share with the audience. What did I learn? And there was one thing that uh, I use in my lectures, and I want to share it with you because I don't think you know that it really made an impression on me. What was the name of the guy who was a top pilot in the Israeli Air Force who was in charge of the of the hat, whatever it's called, Kasda? What was his name?
0: Uh, maybe Mati Carp or Iftah no, no, Spector. No, no, Who? Spector? No, Iftah, no. he came. Spectre, yeah,
2: yeah, Spector. Spector. Well, he came a little later, but yeah, he, yeah. he also Spectre did it on the helicopter. Told me something very interesting. I want to share with you. You just react to it. And I'm using it now. I give him a rec- I give him credit also. He told me a story which I like to share with the audience. He was one of the top pilots of Israel. Maybe he was even a top gun, and. uh and uh, uh, one thing more, uh, when, I, when I worked with the Israeli Air Force, I reorganized the Israeli Air Force, the ch- ch- chief of command took me to his office, and then I realized that he had a map, uh, not a map, a radar screen, which you could see this, what's happening, I think from Iraq probably, from very far, you could see when any, any airplanes are approaching. So here's the story. There was a plane from, 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 from Egypt that penetrated the Israeli uh, airspace. And Spector was sent to intercept him. And the chief of command of the Israeli Air Force was watching the dogfight on the screen in his office. Now, there was some kind of a rule, apparently, that in the dogfight, Spector, the Israeli pilot, should not cross into Egypt in the dogfight. So the chief of command was telling Spector, the pilot, disengage, because there was a danger that it might cross into Egypt. Spector ignored the command of the chief of staff. The chief of staff, again, I think it was Benito, told him, disengage, give him order. Spector refused, continued chasing, and, and beat the, 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 the Egyptian plane and, 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 and hit it. Then I looked at Spector and I asked him, did you get a court-martial? I mean, you were put in prison, right? You got probably a sentence. How can you refuse the orders of the Israeli chief of command? And he said, that's not how the Israeli force works. And I'm using this now all over the world in my lectures. He says, in the Israeli Air Force, I am in the field. I make my judgment now. If I made a bad judgment, I go to prison. If I made a good judgment, I get a recommendation. I don't have to follow. I have to succeed. And I succeeded, and thus I got a recommendation and not a a prison. I did not cross the border, and I did succeed to do what's necessary. This is a kind of a freedom that you never hear in companies. Go ahead. Make your judgment. You are in the field. You have to make your, your, you know, use your own brain, but you better succeed. Because if you use your own brain and you did not succeed, you are in trouble. But if you succeed, applaud to you. This is an incredible culture, which I really learned a lot from it, and I share it all over the world. Let's hear your reaction to it after the break. Let's take a break.
1: Comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. Learn about applying the Adesis methodology in your organization's decision-making process. Our comprehensive training programs include a three-day introduction to the Adesis methodology, breakthrough to prime, and leading highly effective teams. A detailed seven-day seminar. The seminars are valuable for corporate leaders. Key executives and others involved in the decision making process. Our trainings are available around the world and in multiple languages. For more information about these and other training programs available, please visit adesis.com. Join the adesis graduate school for online master's and PhD programs. Get involved with in depth research into how change can be managed on many levels across disciplines and cultures worldwide. The clinical programs train practitioners with methods that have been used with exceptional results by certified ADESIS associates and clients for decades. Core concepts include the proven ADESIS theory and spiral dynamics, an emerging theory of human social evolution. For more information, go to ADESISgraduateschool.org. You are listening to Adesis Methodology for Collaborative Management for Exceptional Results with Dr. Ishak Adesis. If you have a question or comment about the program, please call in to 1-866-472-5790. Again, that's 1-866-472-5790. Or send an email to paula at adesus.com, spelled A like America, D like Denmark, I like Israel, Z, like in Zambia, E, like in Ecuador, and S, like Spain. Now, back to the program.
2: What do you think about this example, this story? I mean, I I was shocked.
0: Well, it's it's very typical of the way the the commanders in in the Israeli Defense Forces, and of course in the Air Force Act, uh, usually they're getting more and more constraints now, recently probably, but at uh, 20, 30, 50 years ago, they really had all the freedom to, to make mistakes, but to be then be accountable, or or to do the right thing, as you said. Not only that, uh, you know, if as you remember, we had quite a few officers who served in the air force and other arms of the uh, IDF, and they were usually very good for business. Although typically, you wouldn't expect. An officer to succeed but what, what I thought was uh, was really uh, interesting is that in the defense forces in the army it is very difficult to give objectives that are measurable you know, I, I'm not talking about a battle or a war that could be measured but if you give the uh, a, an army objectives, how do you measure it it's very very difficult and you still Prepare yourself and to be successful and considered successful in business. It is much easier because you can measure all your objectives and they're they're much more concrete. So a talented and, and uh, independent thinking commander from the military uh, would be a good uh, starting point for a manager in Elbit. Of course, he had to add all the business aspects, but that he could learn quite easily. And that's one of the reasons that uh, until today we have many, uh, many military uh, people who served for for ten, twenty, thirty years in the military, and they come over to Elbit and other companies, and they're they're the mainstream of the managers in, in Israel.
2: Emmanuel, you really built the company from 35 million to one billion dollars in 20 years, it is a, a remarkable, remarkable achievement. What was your biggest pro- problem as a CEO, as a leader that you were struggling with?
0: Uh, actually, the, the fact that our uh, markets were very diversified uh, geographically, and then a certain point when, when we grew. Uh, With the defense business, to a certain point, we needed to diversify into uh, medical uh, devices and and communications. That kind of diversification really required, on one hand, uh, a lot of entrepreneurial uh, startup uh, thinking, and on the other hand, we were a public company, and we needed to show control and, and improving results from quarter to quarter. That was a difficult effort, but I, I believe with the systematics that that we uh, introduced, it is reproducible, and it was reproducible really from one type of business to another, which is, I think very typical of the Adidas methodology, where it is a general statement for behavior. And for measuring uh, activity and, and uh, operations, so I guess the difficult things were were uh, dealing with the different markets and different products in a relatively small local market because it is quite easy, you know, when you're big locally and it's it's close by, no problem. But we had over sixty percent export, and I'm sure it's now also more than sixty percent. So you need to have a multinational atmosphere. Uh, you have to deal with different cultures. And uh, these were the difficulties, but uh, it was fun, I must
2: tell you. If I recall correctly, the diversification of LBT into medical electronics was relatively successful, because when you sold it, You didn't lose money on it. I mean, the company didn't lose money. If I recall correctly, if it's not a secret, the TV, the communication, electronic, uh, communication electronics did not work very well. What do you attribute if it was a failure? If it was a failure? What do you attribute the failure of this one? What happened here? What can we learn from it? What can CEOs learn from it?
0: Oh, it was a very simple explanation for that. Actually, we entered the internet market, uh, assuming that internet or, or the computer communication will be eventually operated in each, in each home, in each house, through the TV. That was our, uh, uh, that's how we assumed the future would go. But uh, this was true. We, it's true. Well, uh, today, you know, you have PCs and, and, and you have uh, laptops, and so you you, d- you don't use your TV for computer communication. But we assumed that was a strategic mistake. And you, you never know those things, you know, years ahead of time. We thought that each television would eventually be a uh, display through which you would communicate, that we could Uh, talk to and and communicate with uh, emails and uh, at that time we thought that would be the main uh, interface point for communications. Actually it didn't happen that way because uh, PCs uh, became much more uh, popular and of course uh, affordable. But that was the assumption. When we started TV, it wasn't for TV. We didn't want to compete with with the uh, Japanese or, or uh, Korean manufacturers, but we thought we'd add to a TV the communication segment of, of what is today in each PC. And uh, that, of course, didn't work out because the market wasn't ready for that. And even the technology was not ready for that. But the principle was that we thought displays will always be large because you want to deal with a large display when you interface. And uh, all the other parts, the processing, the, the communication part, will be miniaturized. So, we t- uh, at least that was the thinking. The display will be the largest thing in the house or in the office. And you would use that as the input device and, and output device. And that didn't happen. And so we ended up with just making TVs. And that, of course, was not a competitive market for us to be, to stay for a long time.
2: I, I, I want to underline something that you said here for the audience because it's a kernel of knowledge that everybody should possess if you're a CEO. And not even, it, can, it also applies to personal life. How do you control strategy? Usually you know that the strategy is not good after you fail. Then you look back and you say, ah, it was a wrong strategy. But it's too late. It's a post-mortem. How can you predict that the strategy is bad? And that's how it is, how you do it. When you make a strategy, and I'm underlining what you already said, uh, uh, Emmanuel, but I want to underline that. When you make a strategy, articulate and write down your assumptions. And what you should monitor is not the results of the strategy, because the results, it's already after the fact. Monitor your assumptions. Do they still hold? And if you change your mind about the assumptions... You don't have to wait for the strategy not to work. You have enough warning time to correct your strategy and to change the direction. Uh, uh, so monitor your – when we work with companies and we do strategic planning, we say, I want you to tell me what are you assuming, what are you assuming, what are you assuming, and we write it down, and then we monitor it monthly. say, so do we still believe in it? Do we still believe in it? Is there evidence that the assumptions are holding or not? And why is it so important? And I want to quote now Soros, one of the richest men on earth. In his book, he says, I am not smarter than anybody else. I just identify my mistakes sooner and correct them sooner. How do you do that? Monitor your assumptions. Monitor your assumptions. Emmanuel, uh, 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 you don't consider the communication... Endeavor, a failure. Is there, Have you ever had a failure? Can you consider something a failure? Was there a failure that you look back and you said, holy cow, that was a failure, and I really feel sorry about it. What, what, is there any failure, and how did you come out of it, and what did you learn from it?
0: Actually, you know, I guess I was, <laughs> I'm sure I had uh, more than one And and, uh, what you just said about monitoring the assumptions, it is so true, and uh, that really minimized the failure. So if you can uh, do it as early as possible and minimize it, it's it's just another uh, part of the game because you cannot succeed all the time. But it also means that you have to try many other things in parallel. Uh, when you uh, stick to your knitting, which is a very good advice sometimes, in the modern world, with everything so dynamic, you cannot actually stick to your knitting, and you have to look for other applications and other markets, and, and things, especially in technology, of course, are are, are so fast these days. Uh, just to give you another example where, where I recall that wasn't a major failure, but it was something that I thought Uh, we should be much more successful. We we, uh, tried to enter the robotics uh, part of um, uh, citrus picking. We thought if we'd make a robot which would go through a orange grove and look only for the ripe oranges and have hands, uh, automatic hands, pick those oranges would save a lot of work. And uh, would be a great idea for, for to penetrate the market where we thought, and that was the wrong assumption, that uh, people are a problem in orange uh, growers. They are not. They have too many people, and didn't really want to reduce the the, the manpower. They thought that is the the most uh, easiest thing for them to to achieve to to get. So that there again we had an assumption. And we just uh, tried, uh, even not a prototype, but the market didn't show that there will be any success. Uh, but just that I'm thinking now of another, not failure, but something that I think we missed, which I, I really see as a missed opportunity. And that is uh, when LCD, liquid crystal displays, was just starting. Uh, somewhere in the it's a small place in, in, in Israel, was a Russian inventor who came with the first LCD I've ever seen in the world, and, and he actually was the inventor of that. And uh, based on what, and uh, we we had an agreement with him, and then we started to look for for other uh, LCD technologies. And at that time, we had the opportunity of entering LCD just like Korea did later, instead of Israel. And uh, there was a committee, a government committee, that we couldn't convince that it should be a national project, because it wouldn't be just a project for one company, but a national project. And that never uh, became a real thing. And today, when we have so many LCDs around you, can you imagine all the uh, liquid crystal displays around you, Uh, that could, Israel could be the source of those if we would insist and convince uh, that to be a national project. But we, we, we're, that was a failure that I really think is a missed opportunity.
2: I, I, I want to, let's take a break because I have two comments about what you just said. I'm smiling here because it really touched the nerve. So let's come back to the break and I'll tell you why it touched the nerve. You just touched the nerve. A break.
1: Voice America Business Network, the bottom line in business. Dr. Ishak Adesis is one of the leading management experts in the world. He has written 14 books that address the challenges facing top management. Books by Dr. Adesis can be found in 24 languages. They can be purchased at the Adesis store at www.adesis.com or on Amazon.com. Electronic versions are now available for three of the books, with more to come. These books reflect over 40 years of study in the fields of management and organizational change. Pick up a copy of one of the books for yourself or as a gift today. You are listening to Adesus Methodology for Collaborative Management for Exceptional Results with Dr. Ishak Adesus. If you have a question or comment about the program, please call in to 1-866-472-5790. Again, that's 1-866-472-5790. Or send an email to paula at adesus.com, spelled A like America, D like Denmark, I like Israel, Z, like in Zambia, E, like in Ecuador, and S, like Spain. Now, back to the program.
2: I want to point something here. I said that Soros said the reason for his success is that he identifies his mistakes sooner and corrects them sooner. How do you identify your mistakes sooner? Monitor your assumptions. And if the assumptions do not hold anymore, time to make a corrective action. But then how do you make them Faster, how do you correct them faster? That's another trick. And this trick I learned from another associate, another client, a, a Christensen, who is a parallel or sequential or serial entrepreneur. Serial entrepreneur is the one that starts one business, then it stops the next business, and it stops, and the second business. In other words, he has a series of businesses. Parallel businessman has parallel businesses running in parallel. And I think, Emmanuel, you're in a parallel Businessman. You have several businesses in which you invest and you're a chairman and you're running. And and lad like you has been very successful. And I ask him, how do you decide to sell a business? You're in real estate, you sold it, you went into software, you sold it, you I mean, how do you do that? And he, here is a sentence he said, which I would like to share with the audience, and please react to it. He says Ichak, we live in modern world of change. Never fall in love with your business. What it means by that is when you fall in love and you love it so much, you don't want to let go of it. And you hold and you hold and you hold. It's not successful. You hold more and you get deeper into the hole and deeper into the hole. You have to maintain a professional distance. Business is not art. Art is ageless. Business, by definition, because of the changing market, changing technology, is not ageless. And because it's not ageless, don't fall in love with it. Fall in love with art, but don't fall in love with the business. Business is business. What do you say, Manuel?
0: I totally agree with you, but it's easier said than done, because... Uh, business eventually is people, and and you do feel a uh, fell in love. Well, not fall in love, but you do get uh, used to people, and you key, you like the context. You develop relationships. Uh, that is difficult, although I totally agree with you. And and uh, actually, that's uh, another way of looking. Uh, the way I look at at what you have as a methodology, it is the. Hybridization of what is uh, artistic or, or humanistic or personal relationships from one hand, to the uh, more scientific and mathematical part of of uh, running a business, which is the other hand. And I think y- your methodology allows you to to admire and to and to to generate a relationship. That I think is very important because otherwise you're just running for dry results and, and you don't have the satisfaction uh, as much as you have with the people around you. So the, the relationships that are developed, uh, you do fall in love with them and, and you, you hate to leave that. So that, uh, although the advice is very important and I agree with you totally, but I must admit it is quite difficult yeah, yeah, yeah.
2: And, and many people I love think- it. I think you're pointing something. Thank you for forcing me to clarify. Very, thank you very much. Don't fall in love with the business. Fall in love with your organization. That's a difference. Okay. To fall in love with your organization is different from falling in love with the business. I had a client which was in the cow business at the time when in America, investing in cows was a tax shelter. Then the government changed the tax law and cows were not tax shelter anymore. This company should have gone bankrupt. Their business died. They moved from cow business, pasture, to mining in Africa. How the hell did they do that? What is the common denominator? Love for the organization. You love the organization, then you change the businesses. You can move from one business to the other. You're still in love with the relationship. You're in love with the people. You're in love with the culture that you have in the organization. But that organization, by being so integrated, being so in love, can then change the businesses much faster than a bad organization. And I want to point something to you because of it, which was very impressive to me when I was working with you, Emmanuel. We were doing strategic planning, and the strategic planning was pointing that the business, major business, is really in America, and the Israel is too small, And if you want to expand, you need to move to America. And moving to America also meant opening production capability in America. And then I was impressed because you say that, and we'll never forget that, we are Israeli. We also have an obligation a responsibility to provide employment in Israel. That was at the time when there was not enough employment in Israel. We will not move our production facility out of Israel to America or to China or to anywhere else because even if it makes us more money, because we have a responsibility to the society in which we live to provide employment in the Jewish state. That is called falling in love with organization, and organization is more than the organization itself. It is the environment in which it operates, and I was really impressed with that. Do you remember that, Emmanuel?
0: Yes. I remember that was a a built-in conflict in all our growth uh, strategies, absolutely. And and that, you know, I usually uh, looked at the model of management as something in the middle, and there are four forces that are at 90 degrees to each other, that are uh, moving outward of the organization, outside of the management, and going up is for the customers. Going right is for the employees, going down it's for the shareholders, and looking left it's the community, the the country, or the the, uh, people you live with. And those four forces are always in conflict. Each one is pulling to another direction, and we as management have to be somewhere in the middle and not to be pulled too much to any of those four directions.
2: So That is really one of the
0: directions, yes.
2: I mean, now that you're an investor, when you go and invest in a company, and then we'll talk about being a chairman of the board. First, let's talk about an investor. You're a venture capitalist. You're investing in companies all over. What do you look for when you look at a company that you derived from the Adises methodology, something that you learn from the Adises methodology that now helps you in making your investment decisions in choosing the companies you want to work with or to invest in?
0: Well, absolutely. The, the basic thing, of course, is identifying on what part of the life cycle curve are we, and usually it's in the initial ones. And, of course, that's where the movement up or, or down is, is the most uh, critical one. If you don't abort too early, or you keep on uh, pumping in money which is sometimes a mistake as well but uh, yeah it is so it's easy to apply the life cycle principle uh, life cycle curve principle to to those initial investments uh, otherwise everything ends up with with identifying the people and the, the relationship between people and complementary management at the right point of the life cycle So that is applicable, you know, just as much as as in, or even more than in the larger companies. But
2: uh, that's what I use
0: for for, uh, picking up investments.
2: I want to uh, to make a comment on it and to underline. Usually investors, usually, and I work with several private equity funds which are equity (laughs) funds which are a pain. I must admit. The financial engineers they only look at the financial statement. They look at the balance sheet. They look at the PNL. They look at where they can cut expenses and you know where they can dismember the organization to pieces and sell some pieces. And that's how they look at the company. And I would like to emphasize for the audience that we and Emmanuel is ex- exhibiting that look at it differently, because what is the problem in one company which is a normal problem, depending on the where we are in the life cycle, could be an abnormal problem in another company. So we know how to identify what is normal, what's abnormal, and then to see how management addresses these problems. Is there a complementary team and how they relate to each other? What is the culture there? Please realize we did not say anything about numbers. We didn't say anything about the market or the technology. We are looking at the roots of the roots of the company. The roots are usually underground. Most people look at the leaves and we look at the roots and the causes for growth of the company. And then we look at the manifestations. Of it. And one thing more, what do you do now as a chairman of the board? What do you look for as a chairman of the board? What are you paying attention to?
0: Well, of course, there I have, the, uh, I used to be uh, years ago uh, with hands-on management quite uh, uh, in detail and and, and uh, uh, very centralistic i would even say today i always remember that my chairman would never interfere with me when i was the ceo and that's a great example. galili was uh, you know is my chair was my chairman for 20 years and he would never interfere he was a gentleman all the way so i'm always concerned by being a chairman and typically a uh, hands-on centralists. Uh, just remember Galil, and do not interfere with day to but just uh, try to uh, um, okay. influence the strategy. And as a chairman, and actually as a board, I always, we don't have the, the wheel to, in order to navigate or to uh, drive a car. We have only one button and that is the eject button of the, of the CEO. And it's, it doesn't give you any directions to, to follow. It is just one, one big decision, to choose the CEO or to replace him. And uh, that is much more difficult, of course. But uh, I find myself involved, again, in uh, many of the uh, internal things of the company, more than I should be, I believe. But that's, uh, that's uh, maybe another thing that I'll have to reduce gradually.
2: Emmanuel, I want to thank you so much for the time. And uh, uh, it's too bad, you know, I could talk to you for hours. I always do. I really love being with you. I hope we're going to get together. I understand we are getting together on the phone call for your comp- the other company your chair on on the 25th of July. Are we still on?
0: I'm afraid that that is going to be postponed for a week or two. It,
2: it is uh, tentatively on
0: yet, but I will uh, let you know. I think it's going to
2: be. Okay. By the way, uh, if you're going to be in Israel in the next two weeks, let me know because I might have three days and I might jump over.
0: Oh, good. All
2: right. Okay. I'll let be there on. in two weeks. Uh, yeah. Urgently tell me the dates, please. We'll My look. love, your wife, and all the best. And thank you again for the wonderful time, and I think the audience is going to really appreciate your contribution. Thank you, Manuel. Thank you.
0: Thank you, it's right. Thank you.